0: 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik.
1: What makes the Sales MBA one of this year's essential new sales books?
0: I would say it's taking a different angle on sales compared to the vast majority of sales books that I've seen. The most of the materials that we see in in sales, so the literature, the courses and so forth, they tend to focus on the the tools and the tactics. I think that that's totally understandable because those things are easy to teach and they're easy to get a fairly short term ROI in terms of people's learning traction. But I don't think that they are the most important variables, especially when you come to look at top performers. So what I've tried to do in this book is I've tried to focus on a different angle, which is more of the mindset angle. Mindset, in my view, precedes toolset and skillset. It doesn't diminish those other two, but it's, it's, it's a lot less talked about. It's a lot less emphasized. And so the core premise of my book is, what are the the mindset components that seem to underlie the, the success of top performers in sales? And that's why I talk about becoming a strategist, becoming a change agent, and becoming a decision architect. And I talk about what those mindsets mean in terms of how you see yourself, and then what are the behavioral manifestations of it.
1: Beside Mindset Components, what is the book structure and why does it go by the title The Sales MBA?
0: The reason why I've call, I'm calling it The Sales MBA is that I think that it is very striking that when you look across the world of all these sales materials that are available, there is no, apparently, there's no common consensus as to what constitutes a curriculum, a, a foundational curriculum for sales. And and that's that's odd, given just how prominent sales roles are and how ubiquitous sales jobs, even not so much in formal name, but just in terms of people's actual responsibilities at work. It is a very pervasive uh, a, a skill. and And so what I'm trying to do with the title and with the book is convey this idea that there, there ought to be these core foundations. there ought to be these uh, these uh, theoretical foundations for a, a common understanding of what it takes to be successful in sales. So I would I'm ideally would like this book to be the first of of a few to establish those curricular foundations for a sales MBA. One way to 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 follow this line of thought uh, with respect to mindset is, um, I think, to go back to a quote that's always stuck with me. It's from Stephen Covey, famous author, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he had this one line, which was that if you're looking for incremental change, focus on behavior. If you're looking for quantum change, focus on the paradigm. And that to me always resonated. It, it struck me that when you are focusing on the true foundations of what motivates people to, to do things differently, you can't just focus on the behavioral side. You have, to, you have to think about their mindset. And as I came into the world of sales and I, I started to pay attention to people who did this stuff well, there was something that became quite obvious to me over time, which was that I could see a very noticeable shift in the paradigm for people as they got better at sales. So initially, when people start out in sales and typically speaking, they're most preoccupied with being liked by the client. They try to come off as being as charming and as agreeable as possible because on some fundamental level, they're slightly discomforted by the fact that they're trying to get a busy stranger to buy something that he or she may not actually need. And so that's the way they process that discomfort by trying to be likable then the person as as they get better they start to think more in terms of mutuality they they start to think in terms of win-win outcomes and trying to frame it in terms of how we both benefit from this agreement and so that's an obvious improvement but it's not the highest level uh for a paradigm i would suggest and the highest paradigm that i can see in sales is when people do achieve genuine objectivity on a sales conversation where they're able to actually look at the variables in play and they're able to bring a plausible objectivity to their conversation so that although it's perfectly clear that they as a seller have some kind of commercial agenda that's obvious nonetheless they are perceived by the client as someone with legitimate objectivity and when i started to notice that and when i started to see that that was the paradigm that distinguished the top performers. Then I started to ask myself, "Well, what are the components of that mindset? What what allows someone to to be objective in that sense? What are the kinds of questions that that person asks, uh, and how does that person frame the conversation in such a way as to be credible as a as a trusted advisor?" <clears throat> and as I started to think about it more and more, observing this observing my my sales environment, I, I noticed that. There are these three underlying foundations for objectivity. For those who do sales particularly well, they are, I would say, and I'm talking specifically about a B2B context, I should say, and whether selling to corporate buyers, but they, they tend to be strategists. They understand what it takes for a company to win or prevail in a competitive context. They are change agents. They understand how organizations evolve and how they can, they can shape that evolution in some manner. And then they're also, they're they're decision architects. They understand behavioral economics or psychological principles that um, that make them much more effective in terms of the way they communicate to to the client. So what I noticed is that, um, that, well, then I I set about to try to understand and distill the elements of strategy, of being a change agent and decision architect. If you really have to boil that down, because these are complex realms, there are many, many books written in each of them, and you could sort of go down a rabbit, Whole in, in each case. And so the, the, what the book tries to do is it tries to distill each of those realms down to a couple of core questions that any high-performing salesperson typically must ask. And so in the case of the strategist, for example, uh, the two key questions are, how do they compete? Wh- wh- where, where do they compete, I should say? And how will they win? And um, the two key questions for a change agent are, where is the energy for change coming from and how can I feed that energy? and And then the third category of decision architect, the two questions there are what really matters and how can I get them to care about that piece of information? So those are the two questions and what I talk about in the book is I is, is how to think about why those questions are important and then provide a whole bunch of practical examples as to you know how you would operationalize that in a sales context. I think that with regard to influencing people and influencing corporate buyers in particular, one of the things that the book tries to talk about quite a bit is the fact that we are, all of us, confronting these extremely formidable attentional challenges. We are living in a world that is getting increasingly hectic, increasingly overcrowded. Everyone is oversubscribed and you as a seller need to be increasingly alive to the the way in which the human brain works. The raw fact of the matter is that all of us are engaged in radical acts of simplification and, and informational triage all the time. We're just systematically ignoring huge volumes of messages every day because we cannot process them. So that's the fairly discomforting world the the seller is working within right now. And so the influence aspect and becoming a decision architect and understanding these underlying constraints of the human mind, uh, that's something I talk about quite a bit. And if there is maybe one Macro principle that applies to many of the the, the 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 themes that I bring up in that section. It's just the importance of simplification and and curating information in a much more conscious and intentional way. I think that a lot of a lot of the time sellers will fall into some fairly predictable traps when they are communicating to a client. One of those traps is that they, in the hopes of credentializing themselves and showing themselves as someone who is to be trusted and who is knowledgeable and capable, they will simply communicate too much in order to show their work. They will present far too many options. They will overcomplicate the message. They will wanna show just how much effort they put in in order to persuade this client that, that they are someone who should be respected for, for as is professional. And that's just a, a fool's errand a lot of the time. Uh, it, it, it isn't about providing more information it's it's about providing the minimum effective dose it's about curating information in such a way that you can you can pierce the bounds of of attention so you can get them to actually hear you you can pierce the bounds of rationality and get them to actually make a judgment about your offer and you could you could you could uh you could you could pierce the bounds of um just getting them to act and sort of and and, and take take action so the in order to do that what i see oftentimes is that people will just present too much and so when you go back to some of these principles one of the principles i talk about is the importance of contrast and how when you go to a client and you present an option whether it's at the front end of a deal cycle or at the back end when you talk about things like pricing generally speaking what you want to be doing is is presenting a a very simple contrast in order to be able to help the client understand what it is that you are offering. A lot of the times, we just cannot make an, a judgment about whether something is worth paying attention to, or whether it's worth doing anything about, uh, unless we can contrast it with something else. I mean, we know this from everyday experience. If I say to you, "Oh, you should really send your kids to that school across the street. It's a great school." Well, compared to what? Compared to what other school? I mean, what What helps me make a judgment that feels objective and fair as to whether that is, in fact, the right choice? Well, it's the same thing in a client context. It's a, It's a matter of a, giving them the appropriate, usually one reference point, one or two at most, that helps them see more clearly that which you are trying to communicate. And so um, that's something that um, the book talks about and uses examples of uh, from behavioral economics is that that, that show the the extreme differences in response rates and uptake when you frame things differently by using the appropriate form of contrast. Essentially, you want to widen the options as much as possible between between two alternatives in order to highlight the benefits of one side relative to the other.
1: What about your definition of uh, of clarity? So simplicity, optimization, and competitive advantage. If you, if, you, if you can immerse a little bit more into that.
0: Clarity pervades, clarity is something which is a, a core theme for the whole book. So when I go back to these three mindsets and I think about becoming a strategist and becoming a change agent and becoming a decision architect, Clarity is something that is really at the heart of each of those. So, for instance, on the strategy point, one of the most important things for a seller to get right is to understand in really simple language, what is the strategy of my client strategy is one of these. It has become this very elusive nebulous term that is, frankly, overused, and people don't really understand what is meant by the term strategy. And so I talk about that in the book, and I try to give it some definitional parameters. But essentially, a a strategy, a clear strategy, is one that understands exactly who your target buyer is. In other words, where am I competing as a business? Where have we decided we're going to focus our competitive energies? And by implication, where are we not competing? What are we excluding from our field of competitive focus. So that needs to be clear. And then the second thing that needs to be clear is how do we win? How do we win over that target buyer? What are the comparative advantages that we bring as a business relative to our competition? So a seller needs to understand this information. All too often, a seller will just have a very general and hazy sense of what a business does they're an it business they're a logistics business they're a cpg business whatever they don't have a clear sense of who that target buyer is and what it is that is unique to the competitive posture of their client if they did have that understanding if they didn't have to go back to your 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 theme of clarity if they did have simple clarity around who the target buyer is why that buyer purchases from this particular client as opposed to others that gives the seller a tremendous advantage relative to other vendors relative to other salespeople because the seller is now all of a sudden able to speak the language of the leadership team of that client's business strategy is the language that leaders use in order to define in order to make large-scale meaningful allocations of people and resources within a company if you as a seller can talk that language of strategy and understand what it is that is going to help this company uh, prevail or 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 win competitively speaking then you were in a much stronger position relative to other other sellers. So that's how I would say the term clarity is pervasive, not just you know, when we were talking about this uh, informational angle of the decision architect, but also uh, for the, the strategist mindset.
1: What are key differences in, in sales now and 20 years ago?
0: I mean, the big change in the sales landscape has been the tectonic shift in our um, informational landscape. Back in the good old days, the the seller was sort of a key information node for a corporate buyer. For a, a corporate buyer to get information about a product or service, that buyer had to go to a salesperson who was a unique custodian of knowledge, and fully understood that his or her value derived from that status, and and therefore there the, the was a the 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 salesperson was a was an essential purveyor of knowledge or supplier of knowledge to the corporate buyer with the internet and and, and the complete redistribution of knowledge nodes across the world that has completely changed you know and and the seller's market power if you like you know as on the supply side has has vastly diminished so that's one major change is the, the shift in the informational landscape as a consequence of that informational shift in our environment the structure of corporations has also radically changed because we have, because the internet created this vast distribution and dissemination and decentralization of knowledge. What that meant was that the world just became extremely complicated, much more complicated, and it required more and more specialists and experts in order to make sense of these narrower and narrower domains of knowledge. What that meant is that corporations began to become, they began to, the the decisions that that corporations take, those two became more distributed because they they became reliant on different experts within the company to weigh in on a corporate buying decision. And if you look at the way, you look at the data on this. So for instance, the uh, CEB and Gardner have been doing studies for over 10 years now on the number, the average number of of people who are a part of a of a buying committee in a corporation. And the number, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they started doing this back in 2013 or 15 or something like that. And at that time, I think it was an average of six buyers. And I think by the latest analysis, it was up to something like 12 or 14. Right. And and in on in some and in some corporate sales, it, it's even higher. So this has tremendous implications, I would say, for for the modern B seller. You you have, if you're going to be credible to a, a corporate buying committee, you, again, need to be able to understand the language of a strategist, of a change agent, of a decision architect. You need to be able to be credible and to have earned that plausible objectivity that we were talking about before, such that you can have a conversation with a variety of stakeholders, all of whom uh, will are, are not likely to be naturally united unless you can speak to them using the language that brings together these disparate interests the language of strategy the language of what it takes to move that that company ahead in the market so um so i think that the the responsibility for a a a b2b seller in this day and age uh has become much more daunting in a sense you know you, we, we are we are facing a world in which in order to be treated seriously at, at the in the boardroom, you you do need to, I think, bring a a higher level, a higher skill set to B2B buying discussions. I can tell you a story about um, this one top performer I interviewed. uh, This person's name is not the real name, but this person's name is Emily. And the the story really struck me. Each of the sections in the book ends with some kind of anecdote and it's a, an illustrative story about how someone exemplified this particular mindset. So at the end of the strategy section I talk about Emily's story and so she works for a company that provides content storage essentially, you know, they consolidate global content resources, corporate content resources so that they can be easily accessed and deployed, you know, across the global team. And so she came into her role and was had a long history in enterprise sales, but had never really tried to sell strategically because as she openly acknowledged, she was a little bit self-conscious, but she was determined to change that with her new job. And so she came into this role and she determined that she would follow Lincoln's famous phrase. She was going to put in, you know, she had six hours to chop it. She was, she was going to spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. And so she spent a lot of time researching one of her major clients. It's a large global consulting technology firm. And she spent a lot of time researching this company. And she listened, she read the analyst reports, uh, she watched a bunch of YouTube videos, she listened to some podcasts. And she noted that there was this one conversation, she heard the executive team being interviewed by the analyst, and she heard one of the questions was, why do people buy from you? You remember that you and I spoke about this question, we we spoke about how, how important it is to to be very clear on who the primary buyer is for a company and why that buyer chooses the the company over alternatives. So that the executive team was asked, why do people buy from you? And he provided three reasons. And one of those reasons was, sounds kind of trite to say it, but he said, they see us as trusted advisors. And so she, she latched onto that piece of information because she realized, okay, wait a minute that sounds like something which it has a significant importance for this company in terms of their competitive advantage that they 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 want their frontline sales force and knowledge workers they want those people to be seen as trusted advisors so let me test that that becomes a very testable claim that i can start to speak to people in the front lines about and ask them whether in fact they are able to position themselves as frontline as as uh, as as trusted advisors to their clients So she conducted a series of interviews with people in the field, and she soon realized that they felt significantly constrained. They did not, in fact, have what they needed in order to be perceived as trusted advisors because they couldn't access global knowledge assets. They were either unaware of these assets or if they were available, if they were aware of them, they couldn't access them in a a very convenient manner. And so she immediately realized, well, now I have a story to tell from a sales perspective because I understand how this company perceives its competitive advantage. And I understand how my solution can play into that. So again, she was trying to sell a a content, a global content management solution. So she was able to put together a very short story. uh, And she was able to communicate that story to a number of people to whom she reached out cold and said, here's what I understand your your strategy to be as a business. Here is some evidence that I've unearthed that uh, leads me to believe that you're being hampered in executing this strategy. Because I've spoken to X, Y, and Z, and this is what I've heard. This is a a very short summary of the anecdotal information that I've gathered. Uh, We have a lot of experience working with this particular problem, which is clearly something that is identified as a problem by many people in your company today. And here's how we might talk about how to address it. And that's the email that got her the attention of one of the very senior people in the market organization who said, yes, I definitely wanna talk to you. That conversation then was what led to a series of subsequent conversations and ultimately the largest sale that she did over her entire sales career. And it all stemmed from framing her, her role as a salesperson fundamentally differently, seeing herself as a strategist and being crystal clear on the ostensible competitive advantage of this company. And how she could help them enhance that competitive advantage it all stemmed from that so that that would be an example of you know how this you know comes comes to life in in the real world i'm really happy about the release this week on amazon i was just informed yesterday that it's the number one uh, hot new release in the category of sales i'm excited to say Uh, So, yeah, I just encourage you, if you if you're interested in what we've been talking about, you can go to Amazon and buy it there in either digital or paperback form. And uh, please, if you like what you read, please write a review because those things are the most important to a a new author. So thank you very much. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik.